they get prepared and ready to talk about their hobbies and interests as being a very acceptable first date conversation. Because I can just imagine you, Callum, being like, oh, what do you think about the state of the world? And isn't it funny? And what does it say about late capitalism and society in general, the way people stop on stairs and having a poor young bird just looking at you like, I don't fucking know, mate. You can offer me a drink. (laughs) And so... Kia ora whanau and welcome to today's episode of The Alicia Mackay Show. This is an exceptional conversation where we cover everything from pyjamas and bullshit jobs to how to ask enough questions in conversation and Janice from over the road pops over with a small basket of fruit. Enjoy everyone. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Alicia Mackay Show on today, Friday, the 17th of June. It is wonderful to be here with you all. Uh, I am dressed, which I would like points for. I got up at 7.42, and I was due in the green room here at the Alicia Mackay Show at 7.45. I didn't make it by 7.45 because I had to make a coffee, but I did make it by 7.48, which I was quite impressed by given that I actually took the time to put on a top, jeans, and shoes. Now, I have a, I've got a pair of really nice pyjamas. CV, could you describe the pyjamas? Uh, I think the key word there is waffle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the key word is waffle. They're beautiful, and they're forest green, everyone, for those of you who can conjure up a pyjama image. They're from Peter Alexander. They cost an inordinate amount of money for pyjamas, more than most of the clothes that I wear that people see, uh, and they're beautiful. Waffle doesn't come cheap. And I had this brief but genuine thought process this morning of, could I just turn up to the Alicia Mackay show wearing my green waffle pyjamas? Well, you probably could. They actually looked most like uh, scrubs uh, at first mm. impression to me. So in Melbourne, I live right near a hospital, and the first impression I had of your pyjamas was that they looked exactly like when I walk outside my house. So, I th- And I don't think that's a bad thing. If people feel like they're being cared for by their radio hosts, then that's a good thing. Well, just talking about alarms and when you get up and how long you leave to get to wherever you need to go in the morning, we were having a discussion just pre-show about different strategies people have for that and the risk that you take by leaving your narrow to... Uh, narrow window if you need to hit the snooze or the disappointment you get of getting up way too soon and finding yourself with 15 spare minutes with nothing to do with. CV, how long do you leave yourself between the alarm and when you definitely need to get up? Uh, okay, so for this for this live show, I got up at, uh, let's say, 7.54. <laughs> and uh, yeah, here I am, look. Were you sleeping in the shirt or did, did you have room to put that on in the morning? Put a shirt on. <laughs> And then the other thing I wonder about too is the snooze policy for when you're sharing a bed with someone else. So one of the things oh, that... Oh, uh, don't get, this, don't start. Do not no, start. No, I'm absolutely starting. I am starting. I have strong feelings about this and I suspect a lot of people will be on my side, which is that if you are sharing a bed and you need to get up earlier or definitely earlier than the person you're sharing the bed with, there should be a limit on the number of snoozes you're allowed to hit. And if your routine usually involves you having two or three or four snoozes when you need to get up, that's fine. But if you're sharing a bed, not okay. What if you're a really goal-oriented person and the person that goes to bed at night thinks, 
I'm definitely going to be a 5.30 riser tomorrow. But then the person who hears the 5.30 alarm realises that last <laughs> night you was actually incorrect and that today you might be a 6.30, but you might be a 7. And you're about to find out through a series of very quick snooze experiences. Well, it's it's so nice <laughs> that you can you, you two can talk this out uh, on air and uh, create great content for the viewers here. Thank you, CB. <laughs> I, I am interested in alarm strategy, though, because I reckon there's a real, there are a bunch of very strategic approaches that you can take to strategy, depending on whether you think you're going to inspire yourself out of fear, which it sounds like your strategy might have been this morning, <laughs> or whether you're going to leave enough room that if I have enough room, I'll just lie there and I'll pick up my phone or a book. Like I'm, I'm going to check the socials if I've got a spare 10. What's yours, CB? Is it fear? It is quite often fear, like there's an adrenaline that will get you where you need to go, apart from that one time I missed an airplane um, most of the time. <laughs> well, this morning, for example, like you obviously just described leaving a pretty narrow window. Is that strategic? No, no, that was not strategic. <laughs> that, that was uh, generally generally disrupted sleep patterns for quite some time. Uh, and when I do get back to sleep, I do I do enjoy it. A lot, um, but no. the the other The other strategy I have seems to be I think when I am staying in a hotel on a work trip, I will quite often um, wake up hours early just to sort of marinate and stress about whatever I'm doing that day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's the luminal space of a hotel room that's quite weird. Anyway, you quite often have a bit of existential like. Where am I? What is this? Uh, when you know, I'm sleeping in a different place. Yeah, very easy to slip into just an absolute bafflement at humankind. If you're in a strange city in Australia, in a hotel room, you're like, what is it all for? <laughs> That's me every morning. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do that at home, mate. I do that everywhere. Dylan Moran has an excellent bit about hotel rooms and how they're just inherently corrupting forces where he's like, there's no other place where, like, the second you go anywhere, you steal the towels and, like, just go nuts. It's a hotel room. Okay, but actually I've got memories of work trips because I used to do them. Um, and I remember when work trips were like a real novelty and actually getting up earlier because I wanted to take the time to be a hotel person that went to hotel breakfast and was dressed and maybe was like one of those people that reads the paper in the lobby. I, I was never that person, but I wanted to leave myself the opportunity of being that person. Yeah, it's part of Brilliant. the arc of uh, there's, there's a whole arc between uh, being a student and like seeing something free at a buffet and being like, I'm going to grab 12 of those. And, and that continues through adulthood with the, with the, um, the work trips where you're like, this is such a great novelty. I'm going to make the absolute most of this. I get, a, I get like a budget to go to a nice place and uh, I'm going to have the hotel breakfast. And then we don't care anymore, do we? And like, you're not a person that eats breakfast. <laughs> there you are with your bacon and your eggs and your two hash browns and a pastry in your handbag. And then we were discussing the other day, I can't remember whose family it was. It might have been someone in your family, Alicia, saying that one of the presents they used to get from their grandparents was a bag full of hotel shampoos and soaps individually wrapped that was like such a novelty for children that it passes off as a good present to give to a kid. Yeah, have a bag of small items I stole from my hotel rooms. 
I, it's not stealing because they've accounted for it when they've costed the room. Now, CV <laughs> might also remember. This is a dangerous, like, this is an insurance fraud slippery slope to slide down right We've now. We've got to be careful. But CV will remember <laughs> that when I first got Koru Club in, I think, 2014, every time I went, I had to come out with a can of Coke. And so I'd turn up with the Koru Coke <laughs> at CV's place in Wellington. I'm like, here you go. <laughs> that particular arc of maturity, I am not as far as uh, along as you because uh, the last time I got access to Koru because someone was like, oh, you can come into Koru with me, I walked out with an Emerson's Pilsner in my bag. <laughs> okay. It is worth me um, confessing as the final, as the closing note for this particular chat that I, um, and when I bought my first one of these Yeti cups that I keep plugging on the show, and Yeti, if you want to sponsor me, honestly, you really need to. I, I was I was testing how leak-proof it was because I took it in purely to fill it with soup in the Queenstown Koro Club because I was sick and I wanted some soup. So I filled it up with tomato soup and then slid it into my bag. And I'm like, I'm going to know, because I can't take it out because I've got to go through security. And you'll be pleased to know that A, my soup theft worked and I drank it on the plane. And B, that I did get it through security without it leaking in my bag. So that is a success story. Well, speaking of uh, speaking of drinks going through airport security, uh, the time that we we're in, I think Singapore Airport, and you snuck tomato juice cans into my bag, knowing that they'd be discovered as we went through security, and also knowing that I couldn't bear the thought of not getting value out of them and sculling them in the line. That was a well played. I regret nothing. Now, one thing I want to talk to you guys about this week, by not 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 you guys as in you two, but you know, you guys as the people that are lucky enough to be joining us. Is I've got this sort of a sense that we're living in the upside down. Now, I'm not a science fiction fan, and CV can confirm this quite. It's the reason I'm banned from movie night. Actually, it's not the reason I'm banned from movie night, but I'm telling myself that's the reason I'm banned from movie night. But anyway, I, I make a few exceptions, and one of those exceptions is that um, as a child and a young adult, I adored Stephen King books, and so I read all of them uh, one summer. And the other exception is that I absolutely love Stranger Things like every other person on the planet. And one of my favourite concepts from Stranger Things, which I don't feel like gets enough attention but did get picked up again a bit more in season four, is this idea of the upside down, you know, that there's a world just there that's just like this but also nothing like this uh, and everything's sort of upside down. Now, I read this amazing book in the last week which I just – Oh, I could not recommend it any more highly. I love it so much. Um, It's Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. And one of the things that David talks about, which I think became really obvious during the pandemic, is this bizarre sort of world we've created where the jobs that have the most utility to society, the most direct benefit, what in New Zealand we would have termed as essential workers just a short time ago, are often not just paid the least, but also respected the least. So, you know, we learned pretty quickly when we entered the pandemic that we weren't panicking about the social fabric breaking down when executives couldn't get into the boardroom, but we were genuinely concerned about nurses, teachers and rubbish truck drivers, and for very good reason. Now, I'm currently preparing a speech uh, and some some kind of stuff for the Australian Local Government Association Conference, which is in Canberra next week that I've got a key role in and I'm really excited about. Um, and local government is another great example of that kind of upside down where in, a, in Australia, for example, uh, these guys deliver about 
just under 25% of all public services. And actually that was before the pandemic and they had to jump in and be like, we'll save you high street and we'll drop off library books to your house. But they deliver about a quarter of public services. They get 3% of the funding, right? And so if you want to look at this kind of upside down situation, it's like out of the public purse, we're making sure that the bureaucrats and the policy analysts, no offense, policy wonks, I am one of you, um, you know, we're making sure they've got enough funding. But I'm not sure if we can totally fund like the roads and the drinking water and stuff this time. And so we're living in this weird upside down world where we give all this attention and status and respect to stuff that like we don't even need it. And the stuff we need the most. And like before I invite comment on this from you two, I've just had this thought that we do it as adults in our lives where we get so many complicated things to think about. And we're like, are we being a good professional? Are we having healthy emotional relationships? Are we caught up on stranger things? And we neglect the very basic building blocks we learned as a child. Like, did I go to bed with enough time to sleep? Have I consumed adequate water to run my vital organs today? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I I I um see this one all the time. I I especially love noticing watching fully grown adults like come to a complete stop walking down a set of stairs to check their phone. <gasps> and, and just like the the kind of everyday danger that you place yourself in because you're you're up here in this higher higher realm of function where you're like, oh, well, okay, this relationship's a little bit stressed, so I'm going to text them back right now, and I don't want to leave them on scene. And you just about fell down the stairs and broke your neck. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really, it says a lot about people. And every time I do see it, I I have this intrusive thought that's like, just give them a little push. Push them. Push them. <laughs> Actually, the thought that just occurred to me then was that you were talking about, do you go to bed with enough time uh, to get the sleep that you need? And I saw something this week which I really enjoyed, which was like, it's seen as being lazy if you sleep in. Like people are always about how you should get up early and the most productive hours are the first two of the day and it's early on and whatever. Why isn't it seen as lazy going to bed early? That should be seen as lazy yeah, too. Like I went to bed at nine o'clock. I was waiting for this. Lazy. Lazy. <laughs> yeah. Cam, no, back to not, the bullshit jobs thing. Not, back to the not bullshit an early jobs bird, thing. are you? No, no, I'm, I'm, I definitely prefer the hours at the end of the day, not the start. On the bullshit jobs thing, when you told me about this book and you were reading it, my immediate thought was, oh, geez, our jobs are pretty bullshit, aren't they? And then I thought the, the measure that might be useful is like how far away from a useful job am I? So I'm, I'm really proud of the work that I do and I really like it, but I'm definitely also only helping other people with bullshit jobs. You'd probably have to go through <gasps> two or three people down my chain. Like the people I'm helping are genuinely enjoying it, right? I, I feel really useful and connected to the people I work with and that's great, but mainly they have bullshit jobs too. Well, this is how it happens. Everybody justifies their individual bit because they're like, well, my bit genuinely, I can see why it's useful. And like, yeah, it is. But then three long, the links along the chain, like, do we need PR or corporate law? Like, probably not. We could probably wipe the whole thing out. When was the last time you had a job that was actually useful? Serving people? Yeah, when I was cutting trees in a forest so people could build actual things. And that was two decades ago. One interesting example to talk about here is a, a real job that became a bullshit job that uh, was catharsis for the whole world. So remember when the boat got stuck? <laughs> oh, yes. 
in yeah. the Suez Canal. What an amazing time. That was somebody doing a real job bringing things that made a tangible difference to, well, turns out 16% of world trade uh, was affected <laughs> by that canal. And it got stuck. And then the vision of one guy, the vision of one dude operating a bulldozer so that the 16% of the world's trade could resume was just a glorious single image too. I loved seeing that. And how much is that guy paid? He got so stuck that uh, there were bullshit jobs created around him where the entire world's media was sort of reporting, re-reporting, writing think pieces on why it was so cathartic for us to just have a simple problem like that the the boat is stuck in the canal because we've been (laughs) doom-scrolling in really complicated ways for for ages. And I, I love that. Love it. I also think that's terrific. And thinking about some of the... So I, I don't want to get all feminist on you. I'm always trying to like push my feminist outrage down because when you guys were talking about getting out of bed, I was thinking that one of the most useful things I've done in the last few weeks is I've stopped wearing makeup completely and it's really sped up my morning routine. And I'm thinking, this is what it's like for you every day. You just get up and you're like, well, my face is my face, so I'm off to work. So I, I'm not going to push that barrow. But it is worth saying that for most of the women and for a lot of the really engaged men out there who've got caring responsibilities and children, the least bullshit part of our job is the very physical labour of caring for others and running a household and looking after children. And as I've ranted many times on this show before, that kind of domestic labour, whether it's just a single guy putting a load of washing on or a mother looking after and breastfeeding a child, is really genuine, physical, connected, tangible labour and is the only labour we do that is unpaid, unscheduled, and we don't give any money to. (laughs) Any kind of caring for others is the absolute other end of that bullshit spectrum, isn't it? I mean, I've I've spent a bit of time in the hospital this week uh, with my grandfather, who's 96, and the level of, well, first of all, as a working environment, hospitals, not great. I've got complaints. as a visitor or <laughs> yeah, I didn't get enough individually packed packages of jam for my breakfast <laughs> what a grim working environment if I worked there I would oh. it's, it's awful um and, and you know they're doing the the realist work there is for the unrealist money and it's not fair and we need to do something about that people Look, I, I couldn't agree more. And we've talked a lot about this great realization, great reevaluation, great resignation. And it's everybody who's like, I've realized that I should do my bullshit office job where half of it's on trade me anyway from my house now, because now I can wear my hoodie at the same time. And that helps me pick my kids up from school and I'm living a life in alignment with my values. And I go, hell yeah, do that. And remember how we decided to pay the people who worked in the supermarkets an extra few dollars an hour while the pandemic was running? Because we were like, oh, turns out they're quite important and it's a bit dangerous. It's this dangerous every day. How about we actually start to recognise the importance of that labour, whether it's paid labour or unpaid, in a different way? And if that requires redirecting, like, I'm not saying eat the rich, I'm just saying actually... Do we need that many business analysts? Could we do without one of those flowcharts? I'm really sorry, business analysts. Well, oh, and as you know, I've definitely. always said that the rich are a great source of protein, but... 
anything else? Do you need to wrap up the bullshit jobs segment before we shuffle along? So no. the, one of the most interesting things that happened uh, this week for me was going out for dinner on my own. I went to get a pizza and do a crossword at a nearby uh, sort of half bar. Was it Rogan Vagabond for those who know Wellington? And excuse me. Excuse me. How do we the pronounce bo- the name of that bar? So I've only ever known it as the Bogan Ragavond. I love a good spoonerism at the worst of times. And if you can call a place the Bogan Ragavond, that is the best of times. So that's what I call it, the Bogan. And I was going there for a pizza and there was a, the only empty spot in the restaurant was at the end of a long table where two people were at the other end. And I did the usual thing of asking, hey, do you mind if I sit there? And they were like, no worries, sit down. It became very obvious very quickly that they were on a first date. And so I sat down trying to do my crossword, but all I could do was listen to the conversation. And it just played to trope. So, Alicia, I don't know if you saw the Facebook post I put up about it, but you're going to have a field day with this one because the entire first date was the woman enduring the man failing to ask a single question. And it was just so painful to sit near. And so I wrote a live commentary on Facebook about how it was going, just imploring Jake to ask a question. Please, Jake, just ask a question. And I could sense too that he was feeling weird about having to do all of the talking. And, of course, the more Alice just gave up, the more he filled the space with his own nervous, self-important prattling. It was quite something. So my question to you guys is how do you know in a conversation when it's your turn to ask a question and is there a way to tell someone else in a chat, hey, it's time for you to ask me something? Well, my first follow-up question is I assume those are just real names. So this has become like a um, a missed connections column. (laughs) Uh, No, I made the names up. They're not their real names. I made the names up. Uh, So... I actually want to jump in and play devil's advocate just quickly because now I don't date, obviously. Um, I'm hanging out with you instead. And I did have that one time on Tinder a couple of years ago, which is worth a chat another time. But most (laughs) of my dating knowledge and expertise comes from living vicariously through Callum and his experience on dating apps. And I've had enough date breakdowns from CV to know that the self-important prattling and inability to ask not even just insightful questions, but very functional questions or questions at all, is not gender-specific. CV. It isn't. Uh, And as I I commented on on Cam's Facebook thread, I've been on dates like that where um, one in particular where I don't think a single question was asked of me. I I asked very sort of thoughtful, probing questions, as is my want, Um, and (laughs) yeah, just got nothing back. By you probing around, and they were like, "Dude, it's a first date. Like, <laughs> ask me if I watch rugby." Actually, I don't. I don't know if anyone's watched uh, that really popular show, Love on the Spectrum, about people on the spectrum who are seeking love with the help of a therapist, and it's all the whole thing's filmed, and it actually sounds really. Um, like it's taking advantage of these people when you describe it and you don't get that feeling when you watch the show. It's kind of adorable, but actually maybe we're wrong. Who knows? Uh, so the example from that is, or maybe you're about to say it, there's an example from that show where a woman who's helping a, a man who's clearly on the spectrum in some way in a conversation technique and she hands him a ball and he has to ask a question to pass the ball and he knows that he wants to pass the ball, but asking questions doesn't come naturally and you 
you realize very quickly the ratio of questions being asked by who physically has the ball. And I thought about that when I was at the other end of this table. I wanted to lean over and just go, here's a pen. You get to pass the pen over when you ask a question and the goal is to not have the pen. Go, Jake, you can do it. That's actually amazing. And I don't think that this is, as you've rightly pointed out, this is not an issue that's limited to people who've got more difficulty than average with social skills. Actually, we all suck at this because we have lost basic human skills as per my upside down point before. But what I most liked about that show, the first season that um, CV and I watched was that they, they get prepared and ready to talk about their hobbies and interests as being a very acceptable first date conversation. Because I can just imagine you, Callum, being like, oh, what do you think about the state of the world? And isn't it funny? And what does it say about late capitalism and society in general, the way people stop on stairs and having a poor young bird just looking at you like, I don't fucking know, mate. Are you going to offer me a drink? (laughs) And so... And so the hobbies and interests chat, I think the most confronting thing for me about the idea that you should prepare, you know, a discussion about your hobbies and interests was I actually didn't know what to say. (laughs) So the hobbies and interests chat, what I loved about it was trying to come up with a list and, you know, if you take this particular conversation as prompt, it's what are your hobbies and interests? Oh, thinking about alarm strategy, battling existential angst when I wake up, sometimes going for a walk, but then reflecting on the deeper social implications of what it means to walk or not walk enough. <laughs> well, the, the part about that's most fascinating to me is that preparation isn't the problem here. It's not that you haven't prepared enough good content for the date. It's that you are garbage at spontaneously creating a bond with people. And the the thing that's so fascinating to me about it too is that whenever you have these conversations with people, I am so certain that the people who are more likely to say, oh, yes, emotion intelligence is so important, oh, why do people do this, a disproportionate number of them fall into that category themselves. It's a really hard thing to know about yourself. So this is our hypocrisy chat from a few episodes ago. But CV, uh, you mentioned a job that I didn't believe existed quite recently, just a couple of days ago. And I'm going to need you to share that with the rest of the audience, please. Okay, yeah, but before I do, I'm just going to give a nice shout out. Uh, Janice, Janice, the woman from over the road who lives over the road from my grandfather, came over to drop off some fruit that she had spare. Oh, Janice, yes. Lovely. Big ups to Janice. At eight o'clock in the morning, (laughs) Janice. Yeah. Yeah, and very insistent on the doorbell as well. (laughs) He is 96, so you need to do the doorbell a few times. The job, the job. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The most bullshit job of all time, uh, I think, is the Cardinal Carmelingo. Part of the Cardinal Carmelingo's job is to verify that the Pope is actually dead. Now, um, those of us in modern society who love to have a missed call uh, will be able to sort of resonate with this one, I think, because in order to verify that the Pope has actually died, uh, this cardinal goes in with a special silver hammer that presumably sits in a, in a case until it is needed. Um, and when, when there's a strong suspicion the Pope is dead, um, you go in there and you knock thrice on his forehead (laughs) with the silver hammer. Uh, And part of the format is that you also say his baptismal name each time that you do this. 
So it's like <laughs> Alicia Mackay, Alicia Mackay, Alicia Mackay. And uh, I've definitely registered three missed calls with you before. Um, oh. <laughs> I heard someone saying at some point, I heard someone say, this is a couple of years ago now, she's saying, oh, yeah, I'm just waiting for a missed call. As though like, <laughs> like she'd pre-missed it. She was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for a missed call. What? <laughs> That's you, Alicia. That is you. As, as a job, the check if the Pope is alive um, is quite wonderful, I think. I mean, it's probably not all that person does. That's my that's my question. What does he do in between? Because one of the examples in bullshit jobs is about a security guard whose job is to guard a, like a very important room in an art gallery, and no one can actually or a museum, no one can actually go in there, and he just stands there to make sure that no one gets in, which they don't anyway, because that part of the building's blocked off. But if there's a fire, and he's got to like go quick that means that he needs to be paying quite a lot of attention. So he's not allowed to use his phone or read or do anything else with the time. So he's guarding like an empty room and he can't do anything else. Like, so <laughs> you're cardinal. What's, what's he doing the rest of the time? Now, the Camelengo's got heaps of duties. That's, he's like the second in charge. So like he's, it's oh. not a solo task. That's he's the ultimate man. tragedy of, of this cardinal, though, is that um, when Pope John Paul died, he was declared dead by cardiogram and they threw out tradition. <gasps> oh, no. I see. Very disappointing. I just love the idea of, like, you're fr- knocking thrice is something that I could hear <laughs> again today, I guess is all I want to say about this. Knocking thrice. You could hear it thrice. Um, it just reminds me of those really shit jokes that you hear, those really lame dad jokes. It's like, have you checked if he's dead? And then so he shoots him again, you know. It's like yeah. that. It's like, pop job, pull. <laughs> well, I like to think it's the same silver hammer as the Beatles song, Maxwell's Silver Hammer, in which uh, that hammer gets used to gruesomely murder people. So maybe that's why the Pope didn't need that for this particular death. Boot at home, Alicia. We're in time. Just one more thing. There's a nice thematic crossover between um, sort of your mum telling you off using your full name and being hit on the head with a hammer and and having your full name said three times as well. (laughs) Yeah, I I agree. And if I ever hear someone say Alicia Grace, I have this like Pavlovian response where I get like tight, like my buttocks tighten when somebody says Alicia Grace. I'm like, it wasn't me. I didn't mean to. Uh, Look, one of the things I didn't get to mention today, but I am excited uh, about in general, and so I'm going to mention it as part of closing, which basically breaks every rule about how you might wrap up uh, a half an hour segment on anyone's <laughs> show, is that I discovered that Kiwis aren't the only in- ingenuous people that live in this part of the world, and that apparently Australians invented the odd thing. And for those of you who would like a list, you can't have one, but three things that really blew me away were Wi-Fi, nice one, Australia. Uh, cask wine, because everybody needs wine in a box, and the ballot box. So, you know, given how shit your politics got, there's some beautiful irony in that, isn't there? But anyway, thank you all for joining us uh, here today. We've covered a full range of spectrum of conversation, as as always, from, um, you know, the gender division of domestic labour, what we put on our faces, what our strategies are to uh, managing an alarm and getting up in the morning. Nobody ever really answered my question as to whether pyjamas would or would not be appropriate on the Alicia Mackay show. If you would, you know, like to comment on that now and so I knew for future weeks, that would be kind of great. 
We also talked about examples of the world being upside down, whether or not we truly value and make clear that we value the work that keeps society ticking along, whether that's paid work like nursing, teaching, rubbish collection, or whether it's the emotional and physical work of caring for those in our lives. And whether maybe we could do with recognizing work on the more essential end of the spectrum in a more tangible fashion than we currently do, and whether, you know, we need all those flowcharts. Wrapping up with some fruit from Janice, some terrible question asking or lack of it from the male population of Wellington who are doing a terrible job of their Tinder dates. Uh, and just want to remind you again that Australians invented cask wine. So you've got them to thank for wine in a box. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And Pavlova. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy your day and hopefully you're not bullshit job. Cheeky shit. Cheeky shit.